Today, we're beginning a new series uh, simply called Practices. And in this series, we are going to explore how our faith is not just a set of intellectual ideas, but it's a practice. It's a way of life. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word and put it into practice. And this is why we pray week after week that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers also. As James writes in his letter, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So over the next six weeks, we're going to look at a handful, just a handful of key practices that empower us to walk in the ways of Jesus. And these practices are dwelling in Christ, table, forgiveness, testimony, being with the least, and Sabbath. Those are the six we're going to look at. And while there are many other practices we could have considered, I selected these six because I think each achieve two aims. They keep us connected to Jesus for the sake of the world. They keep us connected to Jesus, but for the sake of the world. And a healthy set of practices achieves both of these things. But sometimes we can be way too individualistic with our practices. We take communion or we pray or we rest and we do it because we think this practice, whatever it may be, this helps me stay connected to God. And of course, that's good. We want that. But if that's where the practice stops, then it stops short because Jesus, he shapes and he forms us to make his presence known in the city, to make his presence known in the world, to make his presence known in our relationships. Jesus makes us into light. He makes us into his light so that he's visible in the dark. He makes us into salt so that the world can be flavored with his presence. You see, practices, they keep us connected to Jesus, but for the sake of the world. On the other hand, sometimes we can focus on practices that are for the sake of others and neglect remaining connected to Jesus. We share faith or we serve the marginalized. We forgive others. But if we're doing this out of our own strength, without a strong attachment to Jesus, we're going to end up being false witnesses. In a worst case scenario, we burn out. We get angry that other people don't seem to show the same conviction, the same commitment to serving the world that we do. We become overburdened. And rather than making Jesus' presence known, we're just making ourselves known instead. And so in this series, I want us to see how a healthy set of practices achieves both of these aims. They help us stay connected to Jesus for the sake of the world. If you're new to faith, If you're just exploring the Christian faith, I hope that this series will be of some help because sometimes if you're wrestling with the ideas of Christianity, what helps immensely is seeing it put into practice, seeing it actually flushed out in the lives of people around you, flushed out in your own life. So today we're going to begin with the first and primary practice, dwelling in Christ. And in a sense, this is not just one practice, but the aim of everything we do in our faith. In in John's gospel, which was our reading this morning, Jesus calls his followers to abide in him, to dwell in him, and to make this their central task, to make this their fundamental aim and orientation of their life. And so this is the big idea I want to explore this morning. If we dwell in Jesus, we are attached to him for the sake of the world. If we dwell in Jesus, we are attached to him for the sake of the world. If you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 15. We read the whole passage this morning. It would take several sermons to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to highlight a few key things. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, take one of our uh, church Bibles home with you, and everything's going to be on the screen. 
John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Here's what we read from our Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Abide in me and I in you. That's the heart of this passage. Abide in me and I in you. And it can leave us scratching our heads a little bit because Jesus seems to be employing this Yoda-like reasoning where it's like back and forth and you're not quite sure what he's talking about. And even if we can grasp our heads around it, what is abiding? It sounds mystical. It sounds spiritual. It sounds interesting. And yet at the same time, how do you do it? What does it mean to actually abide and have this strong sense of connection to Jesus? It helps to know that abide means to remain or to stay or to be connected or dwell. This is about remaining in Jesus, staying connected to Jesus, making your dwelling or your home in Jesus. Eugene Peterson in the message translates this passage as live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. Jesus invites his closest followers, he invites us to make our home in him. Your whole life revolves around your home. It's, from, it's where you live out of, it's where you return to. Your home is a central part of your identity and it, it shapes who you are. And so abiding is an identity practice. It's an expression of who you are. As Jesus said in the beginning of this passage, I am the vine. Imagine if Jesus said, I am the true maple leaf. What would you actually hear? I mean, if you're Canadian, you would think he's making some sort of claim about our nationalistic identity. Uh, now we might assume he's saying he's the exemplar Canadian, the most tried and true flannelly maple syrup guzzling Canadian alive. Uh, but he's saying something more profound. Jesus would actually be saying, I am the true Canada. Everything that Canada strives to be, every value and attitude and hope, everything that makes up our national identity, Jesus would be saying, I'm all of it. And more astonishingly, he would be saying, you can only be Canadian in reference to me. Not being in this land, not having citizenship, you're only a Canadian if you're attached to me. But Jesus actually says, I'm the true vine. And his disciples wouldn't just hear him saying, I'm the true Israelite. They'd be hearing something far more revolutionary. They're hearing Jesus say, I am the true Israel. See, just as Canadians have their maple leaf, Israelites had the vine. This was their national symbol. It's the image on their currency. They chose this image because it's how God constantly refers to them throughout the scriptures. He calls Israel a luxurious vine, his beloved vine, a vine in his vineyard that he hopes to bear much fruit for the world. And so you were an Israelite because you were connected to the vine. You were connected to the nation of Israel. This is what made you part of God's people. 
And so what Jesus is saying is this, I'm the true Israel. So if you want to be counted among God's people, you have to be connected to me. What matters then is not your ethnicity, not the land in which you live. The only thing that matters is your relationship to me. But can you imagine, I mean, really, how challenging this teaching would be for his Jewish disciples? Their whole lives, they were taught that they were God's people because they were born into the right people group. You're an Israelite, you're God's people. You live in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem, you're God's people. But now Jesus is saying the only thing that matters is that you're connected to him. He's not concerned about your ethnicity, not about the land, not even the laws they learn to keep. I mean, imagine Jesus coming to us saying, I'm the true maple leaf, right? And, and you can only be Canadian now in reference to me. It doesn't matter if you have citizenship or permanent residency. It doesn't matter if you live in this land. You are only properly and truly Canadian if you dwell in me. And that would ruffle some feathers. Do you see in saying this, I am the true vine. Jesus is initiating the work of disentangling his disciples from everything that defines them. He's disentangling them from everything that makes up their identity and all the ways they sought to define themselves. Are you a branch connected to the vine? Are you in relationship with Jesus? That's the only thing he says that matters. Our ethnicity, our family of origin, our nationality, our social status, our resume, how many likes we got on our recent post. Some of these things matter, but they don't matter ultimately. They are not the things that you can build your identity upon. They matter much less than what Jesus says about who we are. So if Jesus says your identity is not about these things, important things, who are we? And how do we discern that? Jesus says, connect yourself to me. Abide in me. Make your home in me. Dwell with me, and I'll tell you who you are. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As God the Father, the God of the universe, has loved me, Jesus saying, as the Father has loved the Son with an eternal, perfect love, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is what Jesus is saying about who we are. He's saying, my love for you is your identity. That's what he's saying. My love for you is is your identity. I just got a mm from Laura over there. That was really encouraging. <laughs> you see, humanity is a unique species because we are driven by our desire and fundamentally by our desire to love and be loved. The economist Adam Smith wrote, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. The French novelist Montaigne Dupin wrote, there is only one happiness in life, to love and to be loved. The poet Robert Frost wrote, love is the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. 
Economists, novelists, poets, philosophers, humans. I mean, we know this. We want to be loved and we want to be lovely. And that is what drives us. But it is so fundamental to who we are that I think we forget how much it is actually a core desire. Our minds, though, they're continually preoccupied with the desire to be liked or respected or cared for. We want to be appreciated or desired and praised and cherished. We want people to enjoy our presence and desire our company. We want to be loved and lovely. But the problem is we can be so desperate to be loved, so desperate to be accepted, that we put on a mask. Does anyone do that? You put on a mask. You seek to please others. You try to live up to other people's fickle expectations, but deep down, you're afraid. You're afraid that you're not truly lovable. You're not truly desirable. There's no love brave enough to plumb the depths of your soul and return to the surface still loving who you are. Jesus says, I love you with the full weight and force of God's love. St. Paul in the letter to the Ephesians prays that God may strengthen you. So give us strength, Lord. Why? To comprehend the breadth of his love. Do you understand? You need to be supernaturally strengthened to be even able to be loved by God. That's the magnitude and magnificence of his love. We have to pray to even be strong enough to be loved by his fierce love. The God who made you, the God who knows every thought and every action and every secret, the God from whom no things are hidden, the God who has complete assessment and accurate view of your life has invited you to be loved by connecting to his son. And God's love, it is powerful. It is powerful enough to plumb the depths of who you are, to see all the things you would rather hide from everyone, the things you would keep behind the mask. God's love is able to go to the depths of your soul and return to the surface still loving who you are, but loving you so much that he will help you become the person he always created you to be. God loves you as you are, and he loves you so much that he will cause your flourishing. Jesus says, my love for you, my love for you is your identity. Don't worry about these other things. Don't worry about all the ways you've sought to define yourself. Don't worry about whether you're successful or a failure. Don't worry about how many people like you or don't like you. You are loved by me. That's your identity. He's saying you can't truly know who you are outside of his love. This is the only love that matters, the only love that is worthy of defining your essence, defining your core, defining who you are. You're loved. And more, he says in verse 14, you are my friends. You are loved and you are my friends. You are loved as a child of God, but you're treated like a friend of God. In other words, God loves you and wants to do life with you. God wants to sit with you and walk with you and dwell with you and engage you and show you his ways and walk with you in his ways and talk to you and teach you how to love. But this means that everything we do in our spiritual life, every practice, every discipline, every effort we put in to following Jesus, it's only ever a response 
God first loved us, John says. God first chose us. Everything we do is a response to God who took the first step to love us. So our spiritual practices, they can never be an attempt to earn God's love or to earn his approval or to make God love us. It's always just a response to the God who loves us. We want to remain his love. We want to experience his love. It's a grace. God loves you. It's eternal. It's unchanging. You can't increase the amount God loves you. You can't decrease the amount God loves you. God loves you. And every spiritual practice helps us remain in that love so we can experience it in such a way that it's defining us day after day after day because our minds, they resist it, don't they? You can say, yes, the uh, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And yet it doesn't drop into your heart, right? Like you could probably quote scripture and yet to know in the depths of your being that you are loved and lovely before the God of the universe, that seems beyond your own work. Why? Because it's the work of God. You need to have practices that help you remain connected to God so that his love dwells in you and defines who you are. What are the practices? What are the, the tangibles that we can actually do to be defined by God's love? And it comes down to what Jesus says about friendship. A friend, this is how you know someone's a friend. A friend makes time to be with you. They don't stop responding to your text when you send a weird gif. You know, you listen to each other. You share your heart and your thoughts with one another. And the sign of a good friend is that their words matter to you. You care about what your friend has to say about who you are. If your friend says something hurtful, it hurts so much more than a stranger. You care about your friend's assessment of you. You care about your friend's input in life's major decisions. You care about your friend's words. You care about their words. Jesus says in verse 14, I've called you friends because... All that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You're my friend, Jesus says, because I have spoken words to you, words from God the Father through me for you. This is how you know you're a friend. And so if we want to abide in such a way that it reworks who we are, it reworks our fundamental identity, above all, above all, we have to allow the words of Jesus to dwell in us. We see this twice in the passage. Verse 3, Jesus says, You are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And then in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. If we're going to abide in Jesus, if we're going to be defined by his love for us, we need a practice that helps us become intimately familiar with his words so that they dwell richly within us. And the primary practice that empowers us to dwell in Christ is the most obvious and yet least practiced. Reading, studying, and dwelling in Scripture. Now, I can see from your faces, like you expect your pastor to say, you should read your Bible. That would be really helpful. But the reality is most Christians in Canada are not reading scripture. The think tank Angus Reid conducted a thorough survey on Bible engagement in Canada. They surveyed roughly 5,000 people across our nation. 
And they discovered about one in seven Canadian Christians, that's 14% of people in Canada who identify as Christian, 14% of people read their Bible once a week. Fourteen percent. The majority of Canadians, including those who identify as Christians, read their Bible either seldom or never. But here's the thing. And here's what we're missing out. The scriptures that God has breathed into existence for us have always been for the sake of forming our identity. He gave us these words to shape who we are and we're missing out. This has always been an identity-defining practice for God's people. Consider Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was a definitive text for the nation of Israel. It's known as the Shema. We read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, whatever it takes, whatever is necessary, whatever practice you need to keep the words of God always at the forefront of your mind and heart, do it. Meditate and think upon the words of God every morning and every evening. Make them the foundation of your values and upon which you build friends and family. Intentionally make the scriptures a topic of conversation when you're with other people. Listen to podcasts, read books, print favorite passages, frame them, make them your background, write them on your mirror, whatever you have to do to have God's word always before your heart and your mind and your eyes, do it. But why? Why is the word of God so important? Because we discover the very words of Jesus in the gospels. But not just in the Gospels, because Jesus declares everything that has been spoken through Scripture was him speaking all along. We can discover Jesus in the Old Testament, from the Torah to the Psalms to the prophets and everywhere in between. We should hear him speaking through Paul and the other writings of the New Testament, because ultimately it is his spirit that breathed these words into existence and has recorded them so that we can benefit from how he has spoken. You see, the Christian faith is built around this conviction. God speaks. God speaks speaks. God spoke the world into existence. Light came into being because God said, let there be light. When God speaks, he also acts. When God says something, it happens. That's why scripture says the word of God does not return void. Because when God speaks, he is acting in the same way, in the same way. This is why you need to let his words dwell in you. When Jesus says, I have made you clean, you are clean. In the same way, when Jesus says, I forgive your sins, your sins are forgiven. 
Because when God speaks, he acts and it happens. When Jesus says, I loved you first and I have chosen you, come follow me. You are chosen and you are loved and he will sustain you on the journey because when God speaks, he acts. If you want to abide in Jesus, if you want to have your identity radically defined by his love for you, then his words must dwell in you. But more practically, what can you do? First, and and from meeting with many of you, I realize that this inspiration of Scripture, this God-breathed language is, is difficult for you. How can you know that's what this book truly is? And I want to recommend, if that's you, that you read this short book, Words of Life by Timothy Ward. Words of Life by Timothy Ward. This book is so good that I had to put it down and read the Bible, not because the book was boring, but because he made me so excited about the Bible that I would rather read the Bible than his book. But then I'd want to read his book because it made me so excited about the Bible. I have never encountered a book about scripture that has done that for me. This is not the easiest read, but you don't need fluff. You don't need the popular books that give you all the motivations for why you should read scripture. You need to read this if you're not convinced about what the Bible is, how it's inspired, and how the words of God shape and form you. So if that's you, read this book. Make it your summer reading. But also, you could visit thebibleproject.com. If you want some easily digestible videos or a podcast, that site has tons of resources to help you wrestle with, like, why is this the word of God? Why should I trust it's the word of God? How is it inspired? All those are good questions. And if they're stopping you from reading and engaging scripture well, get those questions answered and stop delaying. But here's the other practice you can do to make this very practical. We want to help you. The daily offices. This is why we have this booklet freely available for everyone who visits St. Peter's. You can grab one for free at the connection table after the service. This is the ancient practice that has defined Christians for the millennia, praying at set times in the morning and the evening, contemplatively and prayerfully engaging scripture so that you might experience the presence of God. You'll just read two chapters a day, one chapter in the morning, one chapter in the evening. It'll take you through most of the Bible in a year and start simple. Open up your Bible and say, Jesus, please speak to me. Read your passage. Look at what stuck out to you and dwell on that. When you feel a sense of awe or you feel a sense of connection, when you feel a sense of, wow, I can't believe this is true, dwell on that. And enjoy that moment and dwell with the Lord who is dwelling with you and abiding with you because his words are abiding in you. You need a practice that helps you stay connected to Jesus and his words. And that fundamental practice is your personal pursuit of knowing the word of God. And the more you know the word of God, the more that your identity will begin to rest profoundly upon his words that you are loved. But here's a caution, and here's why I think a lot of us don't actually read scripture. 
if you get close to Jesus, if you come to see what he actually said, it messes with your life. You might be challenged and confronted with things you feel a need to change in the Bible or ideas you never thought you would have to agree with or ways of life that never have occurred to you. And the challenge is that Jesus doesn't just want you to know what he said. He wants you to be transformed by what he said because when he speaks, he acts. He doesn't want you to just be able to quote his words. He wants you to believe his words. And Jesus has said, as the Father loves me, so I love you. That is not just a promise, it is an action. And if you believe that, if these words get into your soul and start to tinker with who you are, they change you. Now, throughout this passage, Jesus essentially says, I have loved you first. I have loved you with the love at the center of the universe. I have loved you first. If you love me, express it in loving others as I have loved you. If you love me, love others as I have loved you. Take a look at verse 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So our identity is this. We are loved and loving. We are loved and loving. We are loved by Jesus and we are loving for the sake of Jesus. But how do you do that? I mean, it sounds nice. Like, let's love one another the way Jesus has loved us. But if, if we look at the pages of Scripture, Jesus loved in the most revolutionary, sacrificial, challenging, self-giving ways possible. God so loved the world, wrote John, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Love paved the way to the cross and with outstretched arms on two crooked beams, Christ demonstrated his love for the world, his love for you. He demonstrated the power of his love by absorbing the judgment for your sins, by washing your sins away through his death, by busting open the gates of death so that you can be with God and have eternal life. This is Christ's love on display. Love one another as Christ has loved you. It sounds nice, but how on earth do we love like that? We can't. Then look at verse 4 and 5 again. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot bear fruit by ourselves. We can do nothing, Jesus says, if we're not connected to him. There's no way to emulate his love. There's no way to pretend that you're loving the way Jesus loved. There's no faking it until you make it. The ways of his love are too costly. You can't pull it off on your own, but this is what Jesus makes clear. He's the vine, we're the branches. The vine makes it possible for fruit to emerge on the branches. So long as the branch is connected to the vine, the vine makes it possible for that branch to bear fruit. And the fruit that the branch bears is love. 
loving one another as the vine has loved us. Christ's love working through us for others because he is dwelling in us by the power of his spirit. The Christian life is not possible without the power of the spirit of God filling you and sustaining you and forming you and shaping you and showing you the ways of Christ's love in your specific moment, your specific context. And so another practice of abiding is cultivating this radical dependence, emptying ourselves of the illusion that we can somehow walk the Christian way by our own power that this is just a set of nice ideas that can change the world. And it doesn't really matter if it's true. It's just a set of nice ideas. No, these ideas are impossible without the power of the Spirit of God. And so what we have to do when we allow Christ's word to dwell in us, when we see what he says, uh, forgive one another. And we think of the people who harmed us and we don't know how to do it. You don't white-knuckle it. What you do is you say, Lord, I can't do this. I need you. See, you're connecting yourself to him. You're saying, I need you to bear this fruit through me. You tell me to serve the way you served. I don't want to. So I need you. I'm, I'm here. I want to be connected to you. Would you fill me with your spirit and empower me to walk in the ways you walk, to forgive the ways you forgive, to serve the ways you serve, because everything we see Jesus doing is an expression of God's love. Always, always, always. But do you see, and this is the last point, and I'll make it quick. This love is always for the sake of others. This is not just about us being loved as amazing, as precious as that is. We are both loved and loving. We stay attached to Jesus for the sake of the world, and his love defines our presence in the world. He said earlier in the gospel, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world will know you are a follower of Jesus by the quality of your love for those people you are sitting with right now. We are not just loved, but loving. That's our identity, but his love makes us into witnesses. His love makes us into witnesses. Look at the end of this passage, verse 26, 27. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit of Christ fills us connects us to Jesus, allows us to experience his love for us, empowers us to love others, and also makes our love into a witness. So we love in action and we explain it with words. There's no divorce. I have never met a Christian yet who was so loving that people just started falling down on their knees and proclaiming Jesus as Lord without them having accompanied their actions with words. I was walking down Granville Street really quick. And it was after a Canucks game one night. Someone had taken me and the Canucks lost. And so I was grumpy and I wanted to get home. I just wanted to see uh, Ansley. Like she was like a newborn at that point. And I was in a rush and this guy outside a convenience store stopped me. And he's like, can you please buy me a drink and some food? And I, fine. And so I go into the grocery store. I say, you know, just 
pick some things. And so he picks some things. He's like, can I get this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. And we get to the till, and I'm just in a rush. I'm not even really talking to him. It's $30. And I look at it, and I'm like, really, dude? And he's like, you know, this would really help. I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm fine. I'll buy you it. I just want to get home. And outside, he's like, thank you. Thank you so much. And I said, stop. I didn't want to help you. Like, I just want to get home. I'm just going to be real with you. The only reason I helped you is because I know as fickle as my love is for you, Jesus loves you. So don't thank me, thank God, because I'm just a selfish guy who wants to get home to his kid. But I stopped and helped you because I follow Jesus and his spirit was working at me. So I hope you have a great night. I got to go. And he was just dumbfounded. But here's the thing. Without those words, he would have left thinking, oh, there was a nice guy. There was a generous guy. He would have left thinking about me rather than the Lord who is shaping me to serve someone like him. So you love in action, but you witness with words. You go and serve in the world, but you also tell people why you're doing it. That's what it means to be witnesses for Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants. He's saying, if you're truly abiding in me, if you're being formed by me, if you're growing in maturity in me, you become a witness. This is not an add-on to the Christian life, but fundamental to it. So here's how we dwell in Jesus, wrapping it up. We dwell in Jesus by believing his words. That's where you start. If you've never believed in the words of Jesus, the words when he says, I am the son of God, I am the savior of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. As the father has loved me, so I love you. If you've never believed in those words, that's where you start. Believe those words. That's how you abide in him. And then allow his words through disciplines of scripture reading to dwell richly in you. And if you do, your life will never be the same because you will be loved and loving. And Jesus promises in verse 13, these things I've spoken to you, this whole chapter, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If you abide in Jesus, you can have unspeakable joy. Not just regular joy, but his joy growing and emerging in you and filling you. If you stay connected in him, there is an unspeakable joy. And that's what the world desperately needs is a people who are loved by Jesus and loving for Jesus, filled with joy for the sake of the world so that more and more people can come to know the love of God.